My name is Robert Schreiner, and I've just written a novel called The Wolves and the Greyhounds, and you're listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Welcome to The Jay Franzi Show, a behind-the-curtain look at the entertainment industry with insights you can't pay for and stories you've never heard. Now, here's your host, Jay Franzi. Well, hello and welcome to the show. I am Jay Franzi, and if you are new here, this is where we take a deep dive into the entertainment industry to provide you with valuable insights and entertaining stories. This week, we get to talk with a radio host and a chef to the stars. We get to talk with Matthew Gray. We'll talk to him about how we get to start on the road with bands like the Eagles, Pink Floyd, and Led Zeppelin, what it's like working with Hollywood's elites, and we'll take a deep dive into his time on the radio. Now, Matthew has an amazing history, and I can't wait to talk with him tonight. So if you'd like to join in, comment, or fire off any questions, please head over to jfranzi.com. Now let's get started. Matthew, sir, how are you? Aloha, Jay. Thanks for having me on tonight. I really appreciate it. It is my pleasure, sir. I cannot wait to talk to you about some of this stuff. Oh, yeah. I want to hear the stories as much as anybody else does tonight. We have a lot of ground to cover, don't we? On that note, why don't we just go ahead and jump in? How does a chef even get involved with celebrities, let alone going on the road with musical acts? Well, you see, that's the part of the story that's so interesting. I wasn't a chef when I went out on the road. I was just a kid in high school who was given the (laughs) opportunity to go out with the Eagles on their Hotel California tour. My neighbors across the street said, hey, Matt, would you like to go on the road with the Eagles on the Hotel California tour in a merchandising capacity? And I said, yeah, but I think I'll need to get permission from my parents. So I asked my folks if I could go leave high school early to go on the road with the Eagles. They said, yeah, sure, go have fun. (laughs) <laughs> and so that's how it all began. <laughs> that's too funny. Yeah, just go. Just go go on the road with the Eagles. No big deal. Yeah, no, for me, it was easy for them to deal with me like that. Now, my sister, who was four years older, they had her on lockdown. But for me, they treated me really liberally and, uh, you know, just like, do your life, have a good time, enjoy. So what was it like? Starting off with the Eagles on the Hotel California tour as a 17-year-old kid. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it was like hitting the uh, teenage jackpot. So it was all about the drug, sex, and rock and roll and making a lot of money and just enjoying that whole spirited nature of the rock and roll world and the music world and traveling and buddying up with a lot of very, very cool people during those years. Did they actually give you a role when you first went out? You said merchandising. Were you selling merch? Anything that was a licensed product. So uh, we were selling licensed products like T-shirts and programs and hats and any sort of merch. Like I said, I had a lot of fun doing that. Got to learn a lot. I've seen over a thousand concerts in my day and the whole musical experience started off early and then eventually became a chef by having gone to school in London and learning how to be a chef. And they ended up cooking for a lot of the people in Hollywood and the rock and roll world. So you went to a school in London. So did you do that with the goal to go on the road with these musical acts? 
No, I didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up, when I was doing the rock and roll world. But after about three, four years on the road, you know, I was a good 20, 21 years old. And I said, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And I had always been a person who loved food. I grew up around food and loved communicating with it and enjoyed the communal experience about food. So I said to myself, maybe I should become a chef because I was always curious about it and went to London and lived there for four years and went to school, went to the Cordon Bleu Academy and got my chef's degree and then came back to Los Angeles and did the whole Hollywood thing with food as my kind of entree, so to speak, into the world of Hollywood. So you end up in Hollywood. So how do you end up being a celebrity chef? You know, back in the day, and that's my day, so that's a a long, long time ago, people didn't know about agents unless they were for actors or writers, but there are also chef agents. And so someone tipped me off that those people exist, and so I contacted a handful of them, and someone took me on, and I asked them to get me some work with some of the people I had toured with previously with the rock and roll bands. And so, sure enough, before long, I'm engaging with uh, Pink Floyd and Supertramp and Robin Williams and Dan Aykroyd and on and on and on. The list is endless and tiresome, but it was <laughs> it was an amazing experience getting to meet all these people, and they tell me I had a good time, so I'm going to believe them. <laughs> So you mentioned a handful of artists in there, but I want to talk about one specifically. Can you tell me what it was like working with Led Zeppelin? Of course, they are so deeply ensconced in my heart and soul. I think they're the greatest of all time. So I would have loved to have had the opportunity to cook for them, but I was just at that point doing merchandising and going out on the tours with them. So what was that like? You know, when when you're in it, once you get past the shakes and the butterflies, you're having to do your job each and every day. So you don't recognize that history is being made all around you. And and that's kind of where I was at. I was sort of like a deer in the headlights at that time. you have any memorable moments from that? Not from the Zeppelin tours outside of being surrounded by Led Zeppelin and Blue Oyster Cult. All at one time, we're working their tours all together. So I saw a lot of loud rock and roll in a very short period of time. (laughs) And I still have most of my brain cells, and I have most of my hearing left. I was going to ask you if you could still hear. (laughs) There you go. Yeah. So what about your time with Pink Floyd? Well, they were another amazing and colorful and creative group, highly political creatures, and a lot of varied tastes. And so, you know, my time with them was interesting because as a young kid working with them on merchandising level was one thing. They didn't know who I was, but then getting to engage with them and bringing food into the auditoriums or the hotels and using the hotel kitchens and things like that and being able to serve them and take care of them through food and the comfort that that brings was a pretty colorful and fun experience for me too. Now, I've been on the road a few times, and when I have, the food is typically brought in in buffet style. You don't typically have a chef. So did they do that all the time? Uh, They definitely had the arena food. And when they had me, they had a little bit of extra special stuff. So sometimes 
in the middle of the night, if someone wanted Flaming Cherries Jubilee at three in the morning, I'd be the guy they'd call. And during the sound checks, if they wanted something special, a uh, spread set up, that would be me. There was always arena food around, but the special food was mine. So talk about that for a minute. I mean, I've seen the arena food, and a lot of times it's very good. I mean, they've got steak and anything that people request. Mm -hmm. But when you're cooking specifically for somebody or you're getting these calls in the middle of the night, how often does it happen and what type of food are they looking for? Everyone has different tastes. And so my education was French classical, but my experience is all over the map because it always depended on the, the client, your customer or friend. So whatever you want to eat was what you would get. And that's what I would make. And that's what I would become a specialist in. I'd go to this place called the library that people used to go to <laughs> to get information. This was long before the, uh, the days of Google and cell phones and so on. So I had to learn on the fly, but I had to go to places to get the information to do so. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I, I laugh only because I am not a reader. I've never been very good at reading. Reading is a challenge. I have to do it very slow to comprehend anything. But what I typically have is my phone or my computer read everything to me. Oh. It's so much better. I can get through things so much faster. Special outreach for uh, for challenged readers. I'm telling you, the phone, Yeah, I won't say her name right now, but she's a lifesaver for me. Oh, right. If you said her name, then she might go off on you. She wakes up, yes. Right. <laughs> she's like my wife right now. She's sleeping. Oh, let's get her on the phone right now. Please do. See if you can get her to watch the show. I can't. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, but she has an excuse. We have a one-year-old, so it's okay. Do you really? So oh, let me ask you a question. If you have a one-year-old and you're a gentleman of a certain age, what's it like? It is so hard, sir. I am, um, I am old, and I should be having grandkids at this point, but no. I have a 13-year-old, an 8-year-old, and a one-year-old. Wow. And they were all planned. My wife wanted them all. We get married. She said she wanted one kid. I said I didn't want any, so we settled on three. But the <laughs> one-year-old is a handful right now. I, I won't lie. They're all girls, and she is definitely active. Well, wow. What are their names? Sarabella, Luciana, and Valentina. Oh, so we're Italian. We got the world of Italian names, <laughs> and nice. we call them Bella, Lucy, and Valen. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, good for you for being able to have that kind of energy. Do you take supplements? <laughs> no. No, sir, I don't. Um, I should start doing something to wind me up. But no, I'm old right. and I'm I'm beat and I have to really plan my my days to continue to, you know, keep up with them. So a lot of espresso for Jay. <laughs> yeah. You know, honestly, I have no caffeine in my life. No caffeine? None. What? None. I think I'm on the wrong show. I know I should. <laughs> I'm trying to do my best, sir. Uh -huh. I'm old, so I got to try to stick around for my kids as long as I can. Right, right. So I really want to know what's the wildest thing somebody's called you up in the middle of the night looking for? The Flaming Cherries Jubilee was a reality experience. So that was real. That was real. Okay. And so I had a little propane burner and all the pots and pans and ingredients necessary along with the refrigerator and the hotel rooms whenever I traveled. And if someone called me in the middle of the night for something special, I would go to their room and I would take care of them. <laughs> so did you travel with your own road case just like the band did? Oh, yeah, sure. What's a chef without his knife? What's a chef without his spoon. 
And I carry this because this reminds me that I don't want to miss one drop of life. And so I always carry a spoon with me. Nice. I like that. Yeah. So you traveled with your own tools and you went up. Uh, can we ask who the celebrity was that requested that? It was uh, Glenn Fry of the Eagles. Oh, really? Nice. Yeah. Very cool. And it was it truly at three in the morning? Yeah, yeah, the three in the morning, hot flaming cherries jubilee, and that. <laughs> that the funny thing about the flaming aspect of food is that it's done for theatrical value because it looks very cool. I almost set Robin Williams' house on fire by trying oh. to flambe cognac in a pan on filet mignon, and I pour the cognac in the pan right in front of him. I'm trying to show off in front of Robin Williams. And it exploded, caught fire, singed my eyebrows, caught the drapes on fire behind me, set the house kind of ablaze. Cops and fire trucks and the whole bit came out. They did their thing. It was like I soiled myself, but I hung in there, and we got to finish the night after all that craziness was over and done with, and he was the coolest creature on earth, and I was not. But that was a memory. <laughs> <laughs> no. Was that the last time cooking for Robin Williams, or, or did it continue it was, after that? as a matter of fact. I never, I never put that together, but yeah. <laughs> That is too funny. So you you truly lit his house on fire. Well, yeah, you know, it was unintentional. Right. But <laughs> you say that, I'm thinking, okay, yeah, big flame went off when you did it or something. But no, you lit the curtains on fire. That's awesome. I did. I did. You know, it had to go past my face first. So I was truly burnt. So what was going through your mind when it happened? You know, I was just, I was freaking out. It's like, uh, I'm done. It's over. What's he going to do? Am I going to get sued? Am I going to jail? You know, it's like all the things that you go through when shit's out of control. Absolutely. But like I said, he was the perfect gentleman and totally aware and together and gentle and, and the whole bit. It was just like, it was, it was better now looking back at it as to the way everyone behaved, except myself, than the actual experience in the moment, which was out of control. He had you continue cooking after everybody left? Yeah, after everything was over and done, and we kind of carried on. It was just, it was kind of beautiful when you think about it, the way that you take a look at the way productions get made. It's like take two, take 22, take 32. <laughs> you just do it till you get it right. And that's kind of what we went through. Which stage of your career were you at that time? What, what was your age? Ooh, 30-ish. 30. So young enough to still be nervous and scared. Oh yeah. I still, you know, I still will experience that today. And really, you know, look at, look at my face. My face is older than the faces you see on cash. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. So yeah. you still get nervous when you go to cook for people today? I can handle most people and most, uh, situations pretty well. I feel very confident in, in certain areas of my life. And so that's, that's one place where I'm totally at ease and that is my lane and I stick to it. So when you got to Hollywood, who else did you have a chance to work with? Tommy Lee from Motley Crue, Heather Locklear, his wife at the time. Please tell me about it. He was nothing like his public persona. So you'd look at him and you'd see the way that the press covered him and that he was like a tough rocker and this and that. Turns out he's like the sweetest guy, friendliest person ever. 
very, very loving, you could tell, to his wife, and fantastic to me, a total outsider, a nobody. But I was in his home, and he welcomed me, and he was just a great, great guy. And this is when he and Heather Locklear were living together in the West San Fernando Valley of L.A. Very nice. Yeah, I can't say enough really great things about most of the people I encountered in the rock and roll world and, and the Hollywood world. I always say that, too. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've worked with quite a bit of people, and most of them, 95% of them are very nice and, and always down to earth. You get some occasional ones that are a little crazy, but what type of food was Tommy Lee into? I don't remember, to be honest oh, with you. I, you I'm not remembering. I probably made, you know, like sometimes if something doesn't stick with me, it was probably like a Matthew special. So it might have been scampi or salmon timbales or stuffed mushrooms with crab meat or stuffed and dipped strawberries or something along those lines during those days. I was doing a lot of that. <laughs> now you're making me hungry with scampi. Oh, yeah. That's great. So um, who else do you have a chance to work with? The producer of Top Gun, Flashdance, and Beverly Hills Cop. His name was Don Simpson. And I use the word was is because he's no longer with us. He passed way too soon, but he was probably Hollywood's biggest monster during those days. But he was also one of the wealthiest and most successful and most visionary filmmakers that ever lived. Monster in career or monster in personality? personality, the way he treated people, the way he got things done, and the way he maybe didn't get things done at the same time. Really? Yeah. So what was it like working in an environment like that? Very, very difficult. Probably the most difficult experience I've ever had on a personal or professional level. And how long did that go on for? It was about one year. Oh, really? I was like his in-house guy. I was either in his house preparing food or over at Paramount Studios taking care of stuff for him. So when you're doing this, is it more for them personally or is it for dinner parties? I mean, what kind of events are these? Well, I didn't live in, so most of the time it would be to pre-prepare foods or meals or take care of parties when they occurred uh, or to deliver food to the studio or whatever it would take related to food and soothing the savage beast that lives within. (laughs) That's awesome. So if you're taking things to the studio, what have you run into behind the scenes that we wouldn't typically think about? Well, more importantly, I got to drive his Ferrari back and forth from the house to the studio. And that was pretty cool because when is a guy like me ever going to get a chance to sit at the wheel of a Ferrari? Right. That's awesome, especially in California. I mean, as long as you're not stuck in traffic, there's some really nice roads out there to drive on. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So you you show up at the studio in the Ferrari, and you get let right on the set, I'm sure. Oh, sure. Who are you cooking the meals for? Don Simpson and Jerry Bruckheimer. Jerry Bruckheimer was his partner. Just the two of them? Most of the time, it was the two of them and whoever their closest in tight group was. So it's not for the actors at that time. It's more for them. Yeah, I wasn't doing what they call craft services, which is the catered food that is for the cast and crew. So I was cooking for the, you know, the higher ups or the the guys who make everything go. 
Right. It's not like the arena food. It's the specialty food. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, so to speak, that would be precise. So what's the biggest lesson you've learned? Hmm. To probably try to be an equalizer more than an instigator. Well, yeah, I think that's a good lesson in any part of life, right? Yeah. So you have to kind of keep it under control. And I learned that at an early age. I was relied upon even at my te- in my teenage years to kind of bail people out of jail and to bribe cops when necessary and to do whatever it took to make sure my guys, my people, my group, my crew were all okay. So I was a little bit of an enforcer uh, alongside being a chef. So was this happening when you were on the road with the musicians? Yes, it was. I can only imagine that they're getting themselves into some situations. They really were. I was breaking up bar fights when I was still, you know, 17 and 18, 19 years old. It's like, I should not be here. I knew that. I was saying that to myself. Right. The crew probably gets in as much trouble as the band does when they're out on the road. Oh, yeah. There's so much that's going on. And like I said, when I said that I was the guy who bribed cops, I'm not kidding you. If the tour relies upon a certain special cog in the wheel and he's in jail, you got to do whatever it takes to get him out, to get him back on the road because the show has to go on, right? <laughs> That's crazy. I love it. So um, you're doing this all at 17 years old. I started at 17. Well, all my buddies back home, they were still in high school and then maybe getting a job at McDonald's. And I was out on the road doing this kind of crazy <laughs> constantly and so yeah it's like a whole entire disconnect from my life and normal people so your friends are home drawing the names of these bands on their their notebooks and stuff and you're out with these bands right so that's going to be great for you i mean that's going to make you feel pretty good right there is that you're getting to experience all this especially at that age I was honestly extremely wowed by the fact that my parents allowed me to leave high school to do that it still blows my mind to think about that, how advanced they were in, in the liberal sense of the word to allow me to, to go do that and to experience life. And they didn't worry about me. They let me go out and play. They let me ride my bike. They let me go out on the road with the Eagles. So, yeah, it's pretty amazing. That's too fun. I think about it. I, I can't imagine that my parents would have let me do that. However, something inside me says, you know what? They might have. They might have. Because right after high school... I went away to college on a on a moment's notice. I mean, just at the last moment, my father's like, yeah, come on, we'll go get the plane to get you off. He's just like, go, fly, be free. Wow. So I can imagine there might have been something like that, but I don't know if he would let me go on the road with Led Zeppelin or, or any of those people. Either they were they were very permissive or very unaware or just really cool people who thought that their son could handle it. So I'm not quite sure. I haven't sussed that out yet. Do you have any other memories that you'd like to share from the the time on the road or with any of these celebrities? I did a very interesting business that connected food and massage. The name of the company was called Pamper and Dine. My girlfriend at the time was a masseuse. I was a chef. So she'd be the pamper part. I would be the dine part. We'd go into people and offer massage and fine dining in people's homes. So we did that for a while. Got us into People Magazine and National Enquirer and things like that. So there was a lot of amazing publicity, and it was only in Los Angeles kind of idea. And that that hit it pretty big for a short 
period of time, but that was just very cool. And that was around the time when, if any of you can remember when Mike Tyson was still fighting as a boxer and he was the biggest thing on earth. And so that's exactly that time when I was doing that. So how long did you do that for? That was about three years before I sold that idea off. And almost everything I've done, Jay, has been related to food, entertainment, pleasure, and taking care of people, people pleasing, and things like that. Very cool. Yeah. So, I mean, you did it for three years. Was it something that you were, I'm sure you're passionate about cooking and everything, but was the business itself something you were passionate about? Yeah, I was one of those early creators, artists, who was able to bridge the gap between the art and the business world. So I learned at an early age that it's great to be creative, but if you would like to try to monetize your creative skills, you have to be able to bridge the gap to get over into the business world. So I learned that skill set pretty early on and been able to carry it through for the rest of my life since then. So that was a really valuable skill to learn. And that's what I help people do now because there are a lot of just incredibly talented people who would like to be able to make a living doing what they do. So that's what I try to help people with. So you being the chef, your skill is to be a chef and not everybody wants to do the business side of it. So when you start a business, you're doing it because you want to go for your passion, but it's good to hear that you also embrace the business side and that's what makes it successful. So when that came to an end, what was your next move from there? I was doing a lot of different things at that time. I was running a catering service. I was selling foods to Trader Joe's and other upscale markets. I made gourmet, sexy finger foods that went into the retail marketplace. I, uh, had a company that was doing bartending services for Hollywood parties. It was just like all over the place. But when I look over my shoulder and connect dots, I can see that everything I did had to do with food, entertainment, taking care of people, all kind of works together in the entertainment kind of value. So yeah, it sounds like everything's customer service based and which is great. I mean, that's a, a great industry to be in and it's very rewarding. Right. But it sounds like you also held on to the business side of it through your whole path as well, which is what I'm sure is what's making you successful. Yeah, it was not something that in the moment I never thought to myself, I'm going to go do massage and fine dining in people's homes so I can make money. <laughs> and I never said, uh, I'm going to do talk radio to make money. I never said to myself, selling to Trader Joe's is going to make money. I just thought, this is what I want to do. And if you stick at your passion and you're good at it, the money will follow afterwards. So you have to put things in the correct order. I think that's how it works best. Well, yeah, you're right. I think if you follow your passion and your passion's what's driving everything, it could be anything in your life, not necessarily a business. But if you're following your passion, that's what's going to give you the longevity. It's what's going to make you want to stick around and continue to do it. Right. It's just like you mentioned doing talk radio. If you're not talking about something you enjoy and something you're passionate about, you might be able to do it for a short period of time, but you're not going to have that passion to continue on. I mean, even shows like this, I wouldn't continue doing this week after week if I wasn't passionate about it. So, I mean, I love doing it and it's not a money thing at all. I just love doing Mm -hmm. it. I love talking to people like you and hearing some of these stories and it's enjoyable to me. 
So you mentioned your radio show, and that's something I wanted to take a deep dive into tonight. So can you tell me how that got started? My radio career actually started in the 80s. I did Matthew the Primetime Chef at a big Los Angeles underground station at that time. It was called K-Rock. And Matthew yeah. the Primetime Chef would go on the air. It would take phone calls from the listeners, and listeners were set up in advance to try to give us a compelling reason on the air why I should leave the radio station and go to their house and cook for them. And, of course, there's that food thing and the entertainment thing coming together again. Right. So the compelling reasons were all over the map. I mean, there would be one night I would get compelling reasons from emergency room workers at a hospital. And they said, you know, we're here saving lives and we're hungry. And that was compelling. So I went to the, the hospital or the location, wherever it was. Um, I went to police stations in the middle of the precinct. I would cook in the back of a limousine. I would go to a young lady's house doing the laundry in the middle of the night. So there are a lot of compelling reasons over the years. And it was just fun because we'd then finish up my part of the show by telephone because that's how you'd reconnect back to the radio. So you'd do it during the show. Yeah. Not after yeah, would, the show. I would leave right then and there. Yep. Once the compelling reason came in, they'd say, go. <laughs> if you're doing that back in the 80s, really the only option you probably had was the telephone. That's it. We'd finish it up by phone. So, yeah, those, the good old days. Who remembers rotary phones? <laughs> I, I don't I see remember anybody. picking them up and dragging them from room to room. Right. <laughs> remember, we used to schlep the, the long cord all over the right. house just to be able to get the phone a little privacy. And you close the door on the, on the cable, and that's your <laughs> right. phone booth, whatever room you could get to or closet. Right, right. This is fascinating to me, is the, the path that takes you from one spot to another, but... I'm thinking of you being like on the radio. Right. So you had to have a tech person there who could take over the controls at the radio station when it came time for you to dart out. Right. I mean, K-Rock was a big, big station, even though I used the word underground to describe them. They had their stuff together and they had engineers, oh, yeah. they had techies, and they also had the other hosts or the co-hosts of the show while I was out and about having fun driving all over the LA freeways and then cooking for people in the middle of the night. Are you talking on the way there? I mean, is it in route? Are you still doing the show? Yeah. I had one of those, uh, those old brick cell phones or right. mobile phones that, that I would play with while I was on route. Once we got there, we used the person's landline at the house or the precinct or the hospital, or wherever I was in the middle of a, Remember the old gas stations that had the little cubicle for the cashier? Not sure. Well, they had these little cubicles where the cashier was in the middle of the night. If you needed to pay for gas, the person would oh, yeah, so they were protected. Gas. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I, I even went into one of those and cooked one night. And so the cool thing about those back in the day is that they would announce where I was going. And so it would draw crowds because, you know, you're talking about a fairly sizable listening audience at that time. And so it would create scenes and parties would explode out of the woodwork or out of the ground. So it was at a fun a hospital. time. You're yeah. going to a hospital to cook and you've got a crowd forming. Yeah. Yeah. The good old days, right? That, yeah, you're right. That would never happen today. You would never be able to walk into a, a hospital with a crowd. Yeah, the lawsuits and things people would be doing these days. Oh, everyone is so litigious. It's sad for sure. So <laughs> what was the, the most wild one of those you did? Definitely the, the emergency room and the police precinct. Because, you know, those people, would, 
They're working hard. They're taking care of us from one side or another. And that meant a lot to me to be able to, to help them out, to return the goody goods and, and make people feel good through the food. You know, that's what separates everybody. The good guys and the bad guys, the thing that kind of joins us all together is the wonderful food and the flavor. They all, they, all, they all eat. And everything that you love to eat is your favorite food. And no one can tell you it's not. And it's the best food you ever tasted. No one can tell you it isn't. So whatever you like is the right thing for you to eat. Steak and raviolis. There you go. My two favorite foods. Bada boom. I love ravioli. Although I don't eat it anymore, but I do love it. You know, I, I laugh because I'm obviously, with the names I told you earlier, I'm Italian. And mm -hmm. I come from a very Italian family that just came fresh off the boat in New York. Although I was born and raised in Boston, my family's from New York. My grandparents, they were all there. But they would cook the sauce and you know from scratch, and they would cook the pasta from scratch, and everything was just great. And I never realized how great it was. And I always say this, I never realized how great the food in Boston was until I moved. But my wife is an amazing cook, but she's from the South, so everything she cooks is that old comfort food and, you know, mm -hmm. big meatloafs and, the you know, things like that. And it's great, but she just cannot seem to land on my mother's sauce. So we don't have the raviolis the way I would like them typically, but my wife has found another way. She makes them with olive oil and feta cheese and stuff, which is also fantastic. Ooh, that sounds good. Can I pass along a little tip that maybe you can kind of like uh, put on a note to give to your wife? We'll have you call her afterwards too. Yeah, I would have her or invite her to brown a little bit of tomato paste before making the sauce. And then it would become so much more rich and deep and sweet and yummy. And I think that's what you might be missing from your mama's sauce. Well, you know what? Bring in a third party. I will be the, the arbitrator, negotiator, and helpful <laughs> chef guy. I'm telling you, she's an amazing cook. I mean, uh -huh. amazing with everything. But the, the sauce, she has not hit it yet. So we'll get there. How long have you been married? 13 years married, maybe, in 16 years together. Give her a couple more years on the sauce. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. We're <laughs> old. She should have it down by now. And we don't want to say that because she might be listening for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> Babe, if you're listening, drop a comment. <laughs> but anyway, so I want to move on here before I run out of time and, and lose the opportunity to ask you some of these questions. You bet. Your book. Can you tell me about your book? I wrote the book called The Ultimate Eater's Guide, Hawaii Edition, back in March of 2020 when COVID struck my business, which was Hawaii Food Drawers, a very successful company that I started in 2004. And I took it 16 years until COVID came and crushed me. Very, very sad because I got to feed, educate, and entertain people on the daily basis. And it was the most amazing 16-year block of my All life. All of your favorite things come together. Yep. I was the second food tour company in the United States. And now, all these years later, there are food tours in every major city around the world. Yeah, that brings back memories. You can see I'm tearing up. But to answer your question about the book, I you know, was kind of dangling and not really knowing what to do, just like everyone else, feeling the anxiety and feeling the depression of COVID and all that. So I thought, how can I be helpful? What can I do? 
And so I sat down and I wrote the ultimate eater's guide, the Hawaii edition. And that's the story of my book. So anybody who's visiting Hawaii or is interested in about our tradition, our culture, our architecture, our society, our people, you know, you can learn about that. You can order the book. You can contact me directly if you'd like, if you have any questions and I can help you with that. But definitely this will bring a lot of joy and it'll save you a lot of money too. If you come here and you want to experience something real. I'm glad you mentioned that because I, I do want people to to check it out. So tell me more about the book. Are you just describing the different cultures and the food or are you actually giving recipes and tips and tricks, let's call it? Yeah, you know, I like to call them tips and hacks. And uh, <laughs> so I you know, put in a map and I think there are recipes in there and definitely there are guides and critique and information about food and culture and what to do, what not to do when you come here and things like that. So it's way beyond a typical kind of guidebook and it's more centralized and focused on enjoyment and people and authenticity. And so I'm real proud of it. And it's, it's been doing pretty well. And I released it on Valentine's Day, which was very symbolic for me. And so I wanted to be able to feed the world a little bit and do it on a really special day. And so um, it's something that if someone is planning a visit here, it's definitely a worthwhile thing to pick up for yourself. It'll help you out a lot. The things you should do and things you shouldn't do. So give me an example of something you shouldn't do. You should never go to a chain restaurant when you visit Hawaii. I'd like to say that if you go anywhere. Forget about your McDonald's. Right on, brother. So, yeah, that's definitely something you want to steer clear of. But it's funny because I'd have people coming onto my food tour back when I was running that, and they'd come on to the food tour to experience the real Hawaii that I give people every day, and they'd be waving a coupon, and this one lady would say, where's the closest Olive Garden? And I'd ask her to get off the van (laughs) and just say, we're not going to any chain restaurants on this thing. Not an Olive Garden. People are so plugged into what's familiar and their addictions to the way that our culture and society has created this food world. And I was all about kind of like fighting back and showing people the local stuff, locally sourced and things that, that are incredible and things that are flavorful. And just the people are so special here too. I mean, I tell my wife too, because being from the North Boston and New York, they have the best, say pizza, you know, pizza is just an amazing food up there and it's not the same anywhere else we go. And my wife will say, oh, let's get Domino's tonight or let's get something like that. And I don't mind. I got nothing against getting a pizza like that. But I don't necessarily call it a real pizza. It just it serves its purpose and that's it. It's not something that you're going to get and be excited about. And it's the same thing with Olive Garden. I mean, being an Italian, I love Italian food. And Olive Garden's not bad for what it is. But it's not what I want to hit up when I go to Hawaii. Yeah, it's probably a good thing. And now, especially in the post-COVID world, you probably would be better off not supporting the big corporate chains and supporting the little guys who are in danger. We're one pandemic away from losing more independence, and we don't want that to happen. So we want, want people to be able to thrive in their passion because the corporate types, they're only thriving for the stockholders. The shareholders, right. And so us guys, we go into business because we want to entertain, we want to feed, we want to educate, we want to share. 
And so it's a completely different approach. Yeah, I've talked about that before too, is that I've worked for the largest security organization in the world and we had teams of people that would go do emergency services like uh, police protection or fire protection. And we would do all these things and the people on the front line would always complain about the organization and you know their vision or their mission and it's not what it should be. Thinking myself, you gotta realize this is a publicly traded company. These are things that they want, but they're not necessarily things that meet their objectives. So you have to think about it from their point of view. And I don't knock them for that. That's what business is. But we gotta find that happy medium when you're working for an organization like that. But you're hundred percent right. I'd much rather go for the local food. What's a good local food to have when you go to Hawaii? There are a lot of Hawaiian food restaurants, which is a very, very simple food, but it's also simply delicious at the same time. So you want to definitely seek out some Hawaiian restaurants. And of course, the Asian food here is amazing beyond compare. Things along the lines of Vietnamese, Japanese is huge here, Thai, I mean, all of the Asian or Southeast Asian styles of food are really, really big here. So I would steer clear of getting Italian or French when you come to Hawaii because you get that back home. So when you come to Hawaii, you should really try the things that you might not be able to get as easily elsewhere. Yeah, I try to steer clear of Italian food anywhere these days and just get it from family whenever possible. Right. And, you know, a lot of people who cook, like myself, for instance, I experience something I call diner's remorse. And that's when I go to a restaurant and I go, oh, this is really cruddy. Uh, I can make it way better at home. So it turns out, you know, throughout my lifetime, I was also a restaurant critic for Hawaii's largest newspaper for about five years before I started the Hawaii food tours. And so, you know, I was a paid critic, so I had to give my honest opinion about the food. And I would never pick on or say anything negative about the small mom and pops because it could be damaging. But when the big corporate types or the big, you know, my stuff don't stink type places came along and said that they were the best in the world, if it was necessary and appropriate and honest, I would say my piece. And and everyone would have to live with that, that reality. So, you know, uh, I never did, though, critique my friends and family. And you know why I don't critique my friends and family, Jay? Because you want to continue to have friends and family? I want to have friends and family. Exactly. Right on the nose. <laughs> and so everything that you might cook for me will be the best thing I ever tasted. But if someone's cooking for me Not and I'm me, in a sir. position of, you know, I'm good about that. If someone if someone's giving me something because it's out of their kitchen, out of their heart and soul, it's going to be delicious. But if it's a restaurant where money's getting paid or exchanged and people right. think that, that it's the best thing in the world, I'll let you know if it is or not. All right, sir. We do this thing here called Unsung Heroes where we take a moment to shine light on somebody behind the scenes that does not typically get the light shined on them. Do you have anybody behind the scenes that you might want to shine a little light on? Well, you know, even though they're getting a little bit of light shed upon them, the people who are in the writers' unions are having a difficult time right now. And I would want to be of support to them because they're getting a lot of press right now. And we all enjoy content and content requires writers. And I think that those people enjoy success when they get the opportunities. And so I think we should support them. Now, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Matthew truly did have a lot to share. 
So please join me in giving him a big thanks for taking the time to share his stories with us. And thank you for taking the time to hang with me here. I really do appreciate it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. You can do that and find the links to everything mentioned over at jfranzi.com slash episode 18. Thanks again for listening, and I'll catch you next week. Thanks for listening to The Jay Franzi Show. Make sure you visit us at jfranzi.com. Follow, connect, and say hello. This episode has been brought to you by VR Knives, your source for 100% custom knives made by a true rock star. So if you're in the market for a new piece of art, reach out to VR Knives. 407-421-5528. 407-421-5528.